0: Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. And uh, this week, I've been very happy to entice back, back because she was a former speaker of ours, uh, Alicia Eastman, who's the co-founder and president of Intercontinental Energy. So we will um, be talking about a range of things, actually. Uh, Intercontinental Energy has assembled this large portfolio of green hydrogen projects, which focus in coastal deserts and and really is about mega scale clean energy projects. So we'll be talking a lot about the conversion of green electrons into green chemicals and fuels and looking at how Intercontinental really kind of plans for both scale and also a a healthy triple bottom line uh, across their projects and portfolio. But um, I've kind of given that overview, Alicia, but tell us a bit before we dive in about how did you come into this space to begin with? Because I know you've come from finance background amongst other things but just paint that picture for us and then we'll talk a little bit more about the uh, company and the portfolio as well.
1: Sure and thanks again for having me on Alex this is great to be reunited. I'll give you a little background on myself I guess before we dive into the company. Um, I I grew up in the U.S. um, and uh, I've spent the last 20 years based in Hong Kong and uh, Middle East. I have always done pretty much international uh, investment. Uh, for the most part, it was either project finance or um, private equity. Um, I've done quite, and when I say private equity, I mean growth equity and some kinds of mezzanine. I invested mostly in technology, um, specialty chemicals, in uh, various uh, new energies, uh, new types of uh, renewable energy. And when I did make those types of investments, I would usually go to people who are, who are competent in that field or famous in that field um, to ask their advice. And it's just typical due diligence that you do on projects. And one person that I, I worked with a lot and my, my partners worked with a lot, it was uh, Alex Tancock, who is my, uh, the co-founder of the company. And having known him for a long time and no- knowing how bright he was, he had noticed that uh, there was a great, um, a, a great need uh, for low cost renewable energy in places that typically did not have such low cost renewable energy. And yet there was an abundance in places that had no consumer demand or no industrial demand. So he had thought about how do we, how do we connect these two? How do we get the lowest price renewables, which we know are feasible now? How do we get them to other locations uh, that need them and his first idea was to basically connect these super greens as he would call them um, which are uh, coastal deserts uh, really large uh, flat coastal deserts that have a lot of sun during the day a lot of wind at night um, and connect all of that really really inexpensive energy that you can get from having the constant Uh, input um, and connect it to another market and his idea was undersea cables undersea cables had come a long way they were much more efficient than they'd been in the past and so he approached me about starting this company and I thought it was a great idea Uh, we put sort of our uh, backgrounds and connections together and we looked at the globe and said you know where in the world is is the best resource and how do we get it to somewhere that really needs it so we first focused on um, Australia and Oman. Um, Oman, we knew, had a fantastic profile. Uh, and we also knew that Bombay was sitting right across the Arabian Sea with um, a great need for energy, uh, renewable energy or any energy, in fact. <laughs> um, so we, we looked at that as, as our first case um, many years ago, maybe five years ago when we first uh, set up the company in, in Oman. Um, and Australia, we have the two projects there, which are basically the same concept. It, they're all very similar and we recently announced our um, joint venture and, and project in Saudi Arabia. So to get from Iowa, where I grew up, <laughs> to um, now London, um, I took a side track through Hong Kong and uh, uh, Middle East, GCC. Uh, I really have always enjoyed uh, all of Asia and particularly the Middle East. And now I focused on, on that part of the company for the most part and and a little bit of just the general external relations uh, while Alex is the CEO of the company.
0: But it's it's kind of interesting that you you sit at this end of the spectrum of these massive renewables projects and most of the time in you know, the Decarb Connect we're talking to industrials who are talking about you know relatively small scale sometimes on site sometimes close by projects and then of course more ppas and, and things like that but it's, yes. it's quite a different scale that that you're going for which of course has loads of kind of benefits but must also kind of bring quite a lot of um complexity to it so maybe we could unpick um, that and we'll start with the oman project because i think that was your was that the first one
1: the asian renewable energy hub in australia was the first one that we announced but oh. it, it was only predated the oman project by a little bit so we we got started.
0: They're they're basically around the same time. Yeah. Let's pick on Oman and and kind of have a look at what a classic intercontinental project looks like. And and because of this scale, as I said, lots of opportunity from that. But clearly must must take a lot more kind of levers and relationships in the early stage. So tell us tell us a bit about who's involved in that. Sure. You've mentioned this kind of international opportunity for the offtake. But yeah, tell us about that project. And again, the mechanics of a mega scale project.
1: On one hand, of course, if, if something is bigger, um, you anticipate that it will be much more difficult to execute. And, and that is, of course, true. I mean, it's much, much, much larger, it's going to be a little bit more difficult. But is it more difficult than doing 100 tiny projects? No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, we think that the permitting processes around the world are difficult for any project of any size. And if you are able to get one piece of consecutive land that you can monitor and you can do all of your uh, assessments, you can get your permitting, you get your uh, relationships, you have all of your stakeholders, are all the same set of people, that's a lot easier than doing literally hundred, thousand, 100,000 of, of that. Um, it's a lot like private equity. People think that the bigger deal you do, the harder it is, but actually they're almost all difficult. And they're they're almost all required the same amount of due diligence, the same amount of planning, the same amount of everything. Only one of them gives you a much bigger return. One of them is much more efficient. Um, And and the reasoning for going large is really to, to get that efficiency because we want to have that price down low enough to attract people to buy this product instead of buying a fossil fuel based product. This is you know this is how wind and solar took over it's not because everybody decided to be kind and to to have a greener attitude it's because they actually became cheaper they became a, a reasonable alternative and in some cases the most the least expensive uh, source you can find um, and and that's what we want to do to, as well for uh, fuels we want to have an alternative that is in the ballpark that that is something that is a around the same price. And if you make other alterations, you can actually future-proof and and you can actually save money. If you you don't go down this route, you will probably have uh, more difficulty with regulations and taxes and other things like that, but also just the ups and downs of fossil fuels. Um, When you have a a renewable-based fuel, the price is always going down. So you have your project, your first phase, the second phase is going to be cheaper. The third phase is going to be cheaper. That's always true. But we are never going to look up and have no sun or no wind. You know it comes back every year. So that that part of it doesn't it doesn't um, dissipate. You don't lose the resource. Um, and, and that means you have a, a lot of certainty about what your pricing is because you have a 50 year project. I mean, it's it's very easy to predict what your cost models is going to be. And that means not only is the pricing coming down and getting closer, but it's consistent and it's, it stays in a place so people can actually plan around it. And I'm sure you're, as you're aware, obviously the price of energy is, is a real uh, headache for people. And, it, and it's just, it's almost, um, you you really have no idea. It's capricious almost <laughs> what the what the pricing is going to be. Um, so this helps quite a lot.
0: So so let's take a step back then. So for this particular project, when when did it first kind of come up at this discussion, and, and what's been that kind of flow of time to to where you are now?
1: So I, I think we first um, decided we wanted to do the project in Oman in, in 2015. Um, I think we talked to a number of people. We thought about who would be the best partner for the project. Um, at the time, there were three sovereign wealth funds in Oman, uh, SGRF, or quasi-sovereign wealth funds. There was Oman Oil, SGRF, and uh, Oman Investment Fund. And of the three of them, we knew that SGRF was headed by a really um, sort of uh, visionary um, type of investor. Um, and we, we just decided to approach that, that group and see if they were interested in doing a project together. And this is when we thought we would build a large project to do an undersea cable to Bombay. And they got on board and they were fantastic partners. And we uh, looked at what parts of the land made the most sense. And we, you know, we also brought in EnerTech, um, which is a subsidiary of the Kuwait Investment Authority. So they came in And then um, actually, SGRF did a roll up and acquired the other two parties that we had considered (laughs) partnering with. (laughs) So now they're all one group called Oman Investment Authority. And under Oman Investment Authority is all of the oil companies, uh, Oman Oil and, and nine others that were rolled together, which is now called OQ. So we very serendipitously got OQ as our partner that had all this experience in the downstream. We didn't partner with uh, an oil and gas company originally, we partnered with the Sovereign Wealth Fund, but now we are partnered with uh, OQ and they have experience with ammonia, they've experienced with a lot of the downstream, with sales, with a lot of things that are are really relevant and, and helpful. Um, so that was a, honestly that was really a serendipity. <laughs> um, so now we have both. Uh, we have OQ's great partner, and then uh, OAA is still involved and is very helpful. And KIA and EnterTech and are all extremely helpful and, and just fantastic partners uh, to have in, in Oman. Um, I think because we're partnered with a government entity, um, they're obviously very interested in in-country value, and that's something that we're very interested in as well. So. The, our approach to the projects, having that triple bottom line, it's all about including all of the stakeholders. So it's not it's not just the shareholders that benefit from a project. It's not just the economics that matter, but it's it's jobs, it's a community, it's environment, it's obviously the governance, all of the ESG factors as well. These all have to be considered and, and through the viewpoint of all the stakeholders. And by partnering with the government, you um, you sort of inherently get that voice of, of all of the population around your projects and what is what is good for the country, what is going to grow uh, for the country, all the ancillary businesses that we can have, the supply chain that we can build because our projects are so large. Um, it's just a lot of benefits to having this, this size of a project and being able to plan it uh, this way, uh, together with the planning entity of the government. <laughs>
0: So, so if I were looking at a, a kind of a you know a map with you to understand the scale of this, what what's what's the kind of land space that it fills, and 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 also what what stage is it at at the moment?
1: We used to say um, that the size of it, so it's about six thousand five hundred square kilometers or not, seven thousand square kilometers, and that's about half of the size of Bali. But then you know we didn't want to say Bali because that sounds like you're you're ruining Bali or something, but. Oman is one of the most beautiful countries in the world, but where we're putting the project is not that part of Oman. (laughs) The part of Oman where our project is looks like the moon. It is completely flat. It is almost clay-like, almost no vegetation whatsoever. Really, it actually feels like you're walking on the moon uh, when you're there and and you you just don't see anything for miles and miles and miles and you you just don't see anything around you. Um, but I have lost about nine hats uh, just because the speeds are so high.
0: That's a nice kind of uh, painted picture of the sheer scale of it, which is kind of mind boggling when you think about the average uh, project scale that we're more often used to hearing of. Um, and then in terms of like right now, what would you see? You know, what, where, where are you up to with the, with the projects evolution?
1: Right, so you're going to see the monitoring equipment. So you're going to see um, basically um, just the the turbine, the towers, and and the masts. You're going to see um, uh, the the solar monitoring equipment. Not not a full build out. Uh, it's it's not under construction. FID for Oman is expected in 2025. So a lot of what has to be done before then is obviously the resource assessment, and we've been monitoring for since 2019. So we have quite a lot of data and, and much more than, than anyone in Oman. Um, and then uh, you have your normal feed studies, all the different, uh, different types of things that you have to do to uh, get assessed by third parties in order to have a financial close. So, um, and you line up your, your buyers, you line up your financing, everything is set for the first phase. And our first phase is likely to be something like uh, eight gigawatts, would be most likely the first phase. And that, that would be the FID in 2025.
0: And off takers, so you sort of alluded to sort of lining up those off takers. What's the, what's the picture with that?
1: So um, the different projects have different uh, likely first off takers. And you were in discussions with a, a few, I won't say who they are, but. I think maybe by next year, we will be announcing uh, MOUs and then heads of terms and then you know actual offtakes. But I would say that the, the, the two areas that are most interested and make the most sense are um, North Asia for power, because their plans are to, to replace coal with uh, ammonia, basically to co fire. And and they can do that up to 20% with that really making no changes at all. And they're doing studies now to see if they can do 50% with, with very little modification. And that that is the hydrogen uh, roadmap for places like Japan and, and Korea. Um, and then, uh, I guess, globally, the big market is in the marine fuels. Um, so... A lot of these shipping companies that are at the, the sort of head of this, that are looking at maybe green methanol now and ordered ships now, they are also eventually expecting to use ammonia. Um, because, you know, the, the green methanol is good because it's net zero, but the ammonia is zero. Uh, the ammonia has absolutely no, um, you don't have to have any greenhouse gases at all. Um, it's, it's a much simpler concept because it's, it's, it's entirely green, right? We don't have to deal with a carbon at any point. And so I think that is more satisfying uh, as a solution and you can, you can actually cut your carbon a lot easier, a um, lot more easily if you take your big container ships, which aren't manned by very many people and they're well-skilled people, and you can use uh, ammonia as the fuel instead of you know, fossil fuels, diesel and, and very dirty other alternatives. So that, I think, is the most likely uh, big buyer, which is mostly European. And also, I would say, some North Asian as well. And there's definitely building going on in, in Korea and, um, and also in, in Europe um, that are building ammonia ships and that will be part of this whole chain. So um, we'll be very excited to see the first ammonia ship shipping ammonia with ammonia <laughs> as, it's, <laughs> as its fuel.
0: <laughs> okay, so so as you said, you know, that you're, it's in progress. 2025 is the year where things will be looking to come together. But, I mean, having had those that number of years and sort of bringing this project forward, how, how has that kind of informed what a kind of classic intercontinental project is going to look like? Because inevitably that first project to, to really progress is, is the one that kind of tells you the what works, what maybe doesn't, but also what's possible, what else you didn't. So, so what's come up during this process that is now going to inform the way that you work?
1: Well, I, I think that is right. Um, but it's it's not really necessarily the first project that teaches you everything. I think what we have with the portfolio is the ability to learn um, from all of the projects. So we have this cross, uh uh, learning capability and we, and we use it all the time so we, we do try to make mistakes only once and not do it again in the next project so um i think that that's been helpful and especially in planning stages you know you have a lot more capability to to influence um uh changes to make changes quickly and and to to take a different tack but um yeah we, we've been able to really sort of push the the projects forward simultaneously and learn from one another uh, whether it's uh, third third-party providers of any kind of service or technology, or whether it's um, how we lay out uh, the the project, I mean, they are really almost identical uh, versions of one another because it's it's it, we chose land that is almost identical, and we have the the same um, sort of uh, setup. But the only thing that's different really is the jurisdiction and and the and the partners. And even in those cases, we're really trying to learn from that as well. And um, I think our Western Green Energy Hub, we were partnered with the traditional owners there. Um, they own a part of the project and they also have a seat of, on the board. And not only do we want to replicate that with any projects that we have with, with authentic traditional owners in, in terms, this Australian term for it, but there's other places in the world with indigenous peoples and people who have land rights. We would like to really have the project as a partnership Instead of um, just a, a profit share or something, where um, you know, in many cases in the past, they have not really benefited from the project as as much as they should, given it's their land. I mean, this is their land, and and, it, and it's their project. And and actually, with um, WGH, we are also handing the project to them at fifty years. So in fifty years' time, it is entirely theirs. Uh, so they I mean, they may keep us on. I, I may still be alive. Let's <laughs> we don't know, <laughs> but um, but the idea is that this lasts forever. We, this, we don't have to um that's such the beauty of this industry is we don't have to deplete it. It just we the resource keeps coming back, and you can continue to to run this as a industry and and these as partners, they have many years to to train, to, uh, to set up academies, to teach, to have people who, who uh, know how to run um, the project. And when, when it's theirs, that they will be able to do it, which is great. Um, and we think this is a great model, and so does Western Australia, for other projects, that this is the type of partnership that should be, um, should be used in, in all of the cases, uh, so that you have a, a much more fair relationship with traditional owners.
0: I can almost imagine like people out in the ether sort of nodding with the idea of, yes, it's better to do good business when you can, which is something we hear about a lot. Why is it that it's so important to you as part of the project mechanics? Why does that tension on uh, local content, why is that so significant?
1: I'll give you a simple example. I mean, I think the just the sort of ethos that we live by is that if you just do the right thing in the beginning, it's it's easier for everyone. You know, if, you know, doing, uh, doing the right thing is actually usually the more profitable thing. <laughs> doing the right thing is usually the least expensive thing. Um, and, and, and you don't actually have to have this clash of, and yes, you could take every penny off the table, but generally speaking, if you actually Think about things in a more fair manner, then you do less cleaning up and you do more just sharing and celebrating what you've you've made. Um, And I'll give you just a a couple of examples of of how these large projects can take advantage of also uh, can do things that will benefit the community and the projects. Um, So, for example, having uh, supply chain companies being built near the project saves a lot of money for the project, right? I mean, there's a lot of different efficiencies that you can create. Right now, people order their wind turbines from around the world, and they're essentially have rolled up steel and they're shipping air. And you're paying a lot of money to ship air. Whereas if you have people on site that, that also would like to have jobs, you can have an assembly service that which is basically rolling the turbines, and you can roll the turbines on site. It's also only possible because our sites are so big and you know, there's nothing there. Uh, so you, you can actually drive out any length, 220 meter turbine is no problem. You can drive it out and, and, and stick it up on the sites. Um, but this, by having this sort of more holistic view where you have long-term industry attached to the project, you have better jobs and outcomes for people who are living there. And it's also cheaper for the project. Um, having a dedicated facility to to make um, any kind of components, because the project is so large, people do want to have us in their order book, right? And they are willing to do a dedicated facility because they know that we will take up all of it. It's not a spec situation. Um, So by having that capability, that means that we can also provide a long-term economy, for the for uh the whole area around the project as opposed to an extractive um industry where we might like say be mining for something and i'm I'm not saying mining is always terrible but but you can have terrible mining stories where you're extracting something, you're there for six years, and while the people are there, they're paying exorbitant amounts for their housing and their food and they barely make a profit off of what the work they've done. And then it all shuts down and it's gone because you've extracted the resource and that, that's it. Um, and that's very much not what we wanna do, right? Um, so, so I think it's, it's just having the, a little bit more foresight Um, and thinking, okay, how is this going to affect all the sort of layers around us and how can we make that ripple effect positive instead of negative? And in a lot of cases, it can be positive without hurting yourself at all. I mean, it just doesn't have to be, um, eat or be eaten. (laughs) Sometimes we can all be vegetarian.
0: Let me come back to something else that you mentioned, which is, you know, and you just alluded to there, which is that with a scale of projects, I remember when when you and I were doing our prep call, you were talking about, you know, how these large projects act as real market makers. They create the market for local skills and talent. They create the market for a more local supply chain can you sort of map that out? So you mentioned like wind turbines being one example. What, what other things are you seeing building up or the, what potential is there to build up around some of these truly large scale projects?
1: Well, I think, um, yeah, like blades, uh, nacelles, um, there's going to be, I think, uh, a lot of different places in the world that are making um, solar panels uh, right now. I think China has 90% of that market, and there are a number of different players that are actually working on um, producing at scale and, and being competitive in that area and willing to localize it. So, even if it's, say, um, I don't know, even if it's a uh, Reliance in India is doing it right now, they're making solar panels. They would still be willing to make the solar panels on site next to a large project, and then you have a cheaper project, and you have a more competition. You know, more more competitive options. You don't have just one supplier in the world. Um, so I think that that's one example of of other things that you can do on site. Um, but there's there's quite a few of of what you what you need to produce. Um, a lot of things that need to be assembled. Um, you know, a lot of things. Uh, uh, just essentially need a dedicated facility. So um, it's, it's, at this point, not as much rocket science as, you know, <laughs> and, um, so I think uh, it's quite possible uh, to, to, to have t- lots of different industries. And then, and then there'll be other projects that are similar to ours, in fact, that, that they can help uh, to provide for. So if any smaller projects are set up in Oman, which there will be other projects, um, they might not be able to get an entire dedicated facility for them, but maybe one of the ones set up for us can also start supplying to other projects in country. Um, so we can, we can help to, we can help to bring the costs down sort of our, for our project, but then also generally for the whole market. Um, and I, I, think that helps everybody, you know, it helps it, even the companies, they want to charge less, they can, if they can make enough and then they, they will. I mean, it, it's not in their interest to just make two electrolyzers a year. They want, they want to do more, um, mm. but they need to have the demand side to do it. So it, by, by working together, you, you can actually, everybody does better.
0: Mm. And then um, the actual, the kind of products that these green electrons can be converted to. I know, um, again, when we talked about it and on your site, it talks about green chemicals and fuels and that, is that all on site?
1: We sort of have the upstream, which is the, uh, which is the wind and solar. And in all of our cases, all of the, the projects, we have that diurnal profile and you have the wind uh, at night and you have the sun during the day, but essentially it's, it's all uh, over the site. And just to give you an example, when we say the site is so big, I mean, it is really big, but it, we're not covering it. And um, We're using like a, say 4% footprint on that whole uh, 7,000 square kilometers because each wind turbine is five kilometers apart. So you'll have rows five kilometers apart, and then each turbine is maybe one kilometer from the next in, inside the row. So you could be standing somewhere, maybe, and see maybe two wind turbines at once, but uh, you're not going to see rows and rows of them because they're so far apart, actually. And you can do almost anything in between. So you can still have, um, you know, animals, you can still have, you can still have mining, you can still have lots of activities that happen in between the turbines, as long as it's just not other turbines that that interfere with the wake. Um, And then, uh, so that's the upstream. Then the downstream is located closer to uh, the port or wherever you're going to export out from. Uh, you can you can use hydrogen. You can actually make hydrogen on site up at the upstream, and you can send it via cables to um, an industrial user. And in some cases, we have industrial users that can take hydrogen that way. And that's a good way to actually store the hydrogen because you can control, you know, um, the pressure. And that that's a that whole length of of sort of cabling is a good way to store it. Um, or you can take the hydrogen and you can turn it into other um, useful um, items that can actually be shipped more easily. So for our first phases, we are most likely doing mostly ammonia. And that is using the hybrid Bosch methodology to take the hydrogen, take nitrogen from the air, and then put them together. You have NH3, so you have, you have ammonia. Um, and then we ship that out straight from sort of, the downstream is straight at the port essentially, and it's very close to the port. So you, you ship out um, and, and, and that's sort of the trajectory <laughs> that, that our first phases will take. Now, going forward in our later phases, uh, if we have a source of carbon, then we can make uh, aviation sin fuels, for instance, like, kind of like a kerosene type uh, product. So that would be, um, you know, net net zero. Um, it wouldn't be zero, but it's it's best we're really going to get for long distance aviation. Um, and it's it's very similar to methanol. So you know, you can store it at ambient temperatures very easily. Um, but but yeah, ammonia is definitely our first phase for for all of the projects, if not you know later phases. And if technology uh, provides, if if we can if we can ship hydrogen directly, liquefied hydrogen, more easily, more cheaply, uh, you know, at a warmer temperature, uh, you know, things happen, you know, we are obviously can change and, and those later phases can have different technologies. But um, right now, from our viewpoint, uh, the least expensive uh, thing that makes the most sense is is ammonia. And that's also what people are looking to buy and are making their plans around. So...
0: And then a sort of a slightly different question. So you mentioned that on the Amman project, obviously it was the, the sovereign wealth uh, connection that got that moving. In Western Australia and in other projects that we're looking at, there'll be both sovereign wealth but also fully commercial uh, entities. So I'm just wondering, how do those different types of investors, uh, what, or rather, not how, what do they make of the long term view that you bring to your projects, which again is a a difference, I guess, due to scale, but uh, a difference to the project?
1: Well, I think infrastructure has always been very long term anyway. So, you know, infrastructure investors are different from um, typical private equity investors who are looking for, uh, you know, at most have a 10 to 12 year fund and are looking for a, a five year turnaround on their investment. Infrastructure investors, some of them, they want to hold on forever. Uh, they they would like to hold on and just have, you know, kind of an annuity coming from the from this uh, uh, from this investment. And for them, and this is a lot of sovereign wealth funds in the world, they need to move their capital from fossil fuel uh, companies to green companies. And it's very hard for them to move a trillion dollars into 20 megawatt wind projects. (laughs) This is not very easy. Um, and, And thankfully, another just which dovetails really well in it, but it's it's also just wonderful, you know. ESG is becoming more important to all of these investors as well. And if you think about it, it, it makes sense because these investors are holding on to people's um, their their life, uh, their long term life support essentially. This these are their pensions. These are supposed to support them um, when you know they when they're no longer working. And I think that the realization that it's not just the money that people need but they might need to have clean air to breathe and it might also be good uh to not have you know wars because of uh because people fighting over resources um i i think there there is a not, an understanding that that everyone's better uh, or their everyone's health or wellness is bettered by thinking about all these esg factors and if anyone is going to think about them it's gonna be these sort of sovereign wealth type um, entities because they are interested in more than just returns. They're, they're interested in, in the health and wellness of their citizens, right? This is also part of what they're concerned with. And, uh, and so there's been a giant movement and, and I think it's, it's fantastic. I mean, if you look at all of the, and not even just sovereign wealth, look at BlackRock, um, huge investors that are, are very interested in long-term thinking, in ESG around um, all three areas, uh, not just the environment, um, but it also very specifically moving into something that will decarbonize, that will actually solve the global warming problem that that we face, um, the very (laughs) existential problem. (laughs) Um, But I think uh, the appetite is there for uh, for these investors. Um, So of course there are some investors that don't care, but those won't be our investors.
0: A last, a last question. Then we've sort of talked about where a couple of your projects have have got to and where they're sitting at at this moment in time. What what's coming up for you in the next few years? Like, where do you imagine the portfolio or projects will go? You know, let's say by twenty thirty, what's the what's the kind of short to medium term ambition that you guys have?
1: Well, by twenty thirty, all of them are in progress, right? So by twenty thirty, we're delivering product, we're in construction, we're We're maybe starting on the second phase. Um, And and this part is where our pricing is super competitive to any other form, so blue or gray versions of hydrogen or um, ammonia. Um, I mean, I think we're—23 is fantastic. I think by that time, it's really taking off to where people know they have this alternative to rely on, so they can actually plan for it. Because I, I think it's quite hard for companies to plan to decarbonize when there's almost no products for them to buy. And I, I got a call from um, Cathay Pacific, actually, um, asking for synfuels, fuels. And this, I didn't even know airlines were going to be looking at this. so. So soon. Um, but they have targets and they have almost no control over how they get their fuel because if whatever airport you land at, you get whatever that airport has. And if they have a little bit of biofuel there, then well, you might have a little bit of reduction. But you really need um, you need to have a holistic, like the whole world basically has to reduce in order to make a big impact. And, and I think that by 2030, we're getting there to where people have these alternatives. They have everywhere they go, every ship and every port has an alternative, which means that they can buy those ships, they can plan for that, they can, they can do all that's necessary to actually make the right choice. Whereas right now it's, it's, it's quite hard, even if you have the best intentions. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to that day um, when <laughs> everyone can make the good choices.
0: Thank you, Alicia. I mean, really fascinating to to hear about the work you're doing. And I'm always struck on these conversations by the kind of how this breadth of experience that people bring to this this kind of, I mean, I know it's a huge challenge, obviously, decarbonisation and, and climate management. But I, I just, it's so fascinating seeing different kinds of backgrounds being applied to solving different aspects of it. And I think this is a great, great example with you and your co-founders.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. But I must say... Um, our team is amazing, and a lot of that breadth and a lot of that experience and that just that deep bench of knowledge is is coming from a, a, a great team. It is incredible what you can do with all the overlapping different viewpoints and um, experience sets. It was it's been fantastic.
0: Thank you, Alicia. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy-intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports, or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex, at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.